日本史学習に最高にもってこいのサイトサムライアーカイブスポッドキャストへようこそ美しい自然にあふれてる縄文時代から波乱万丈な幕末まで全時代を網羅して日本史の隅から隅まで一緒に語り合いましょうでは早速日本史の世界へ Hey, welcome again to the Samurai Archives podcast. This is Chris here with Travis. Hello. And Nate. Hey, how you doing? So, we're coming to you from the Samurai Archives studio at the University of Hawaii. And, pardon the construction, apparently,、uh, all day long construction vehicles have been driving around in circles backwards. So, it's been making a lot of noise. So, hopefully, they'll.、Uh, exactly. So, hopefully, they'll、uh, keep it down for us、uh, this, this week. And. So, when you think of historians and what they do, most likely if you're not an academic, you, you figure, well, historians write biographies, they summarize historical events, they put them in books, they research old manuscripts and summarize them, and, that's, and there's no real methodology to it, there's no real, there's no, there's no different styles or methods of, of going about doing it, it's just sort of very straightforward and very. Seems like an easy task. Yeah, a very simple task of reading everything, putting it together, find and out what happened. You put it in a book and, and make lots of money. Oh, otherwise, no, well, never mind. I never mind. That. But I mean, that's the most fun kind of history. That's what I do for the wiki. You know,、yeah. Read things, discover things, write it down. And which is valuable. Yeah, and generally speaking, that, I, believe, I think that's what most people think that historians do is they basically just very generally they'll, they'll gather information and present it. And there's no real. Possibly analysis or otherwise, there's, there's no methodologies and there, there's no different ways of going about it. It's, it's very straightforward. This is how you do it, rather than there's different styles of doing it, different methodologies. So,、uh, since we have some,、uh, a pair of experts here to actually <laughs> <laughs> talk about this and sort of tell you what historians actually do do and what sort of methodology is involved and the different styles that are involved, the different tasks, and why two historians focusing on the same thing will hate each other. Terribly and be complete, completely at odds with what they're coming up with.、Uh, so, we'll kind of get into why that sort of thing happens. And so, I'll、uh, turn the reins over to our two academic experts here, Nate and Travis. Yeah, academic and expert, my keister. Anyway,、um, I, yeah, I mean, it's been something that's, that's been kind of being familiar with、um, a lot of writing on Japanese history. I, Before I, I knew somewhat, but you know, over the last year here in grad school, you, you know, they, they, they force you to look at things in a different way, and you learn, kind of learn a lot of the,、um, the reasons why different you know, historians write the way that they did or, or, or do.、Um, and you, you realize that、uh, the number one thing I think people should keep in mind is that while most academics, most historians, most, you know, Uh, university professors,、uh, what, you know, PhDs, whatever they are, whoever's putting it together,、um, while they're trained and they have to go you know, learn how to, how to do all this stuff, they're still people.、Um, I mean, you know, these, these authors, they're still people. Not only do people make mistakes just by nature of being human,、right. uh, but I mean, even beyond mistakes, you know,、uh, Travis, you and I,、uh, because we have. Different interests、right. and different focuses, we view things、right. very differently. And, and it's just and, a matter of taste. Even in subjects that we both like. Yeah, yeah, yeah.、Um, it's just know, a matter of taste and personality. Yeah. And,、uh, yeah. I mean, to just use an example, you know, you're an Edo period guy. I、right. like everything before Edo period, but primarily <laughs> Sengoku period guy. Right. So something like,、uh, we'll say on the borderline, you know, like the, the beginning of the,、uh, the Tokugawa. Shogunate. Oh, perfect.、Yeah. You're look- I'm looking at that as an ending. You're looking at that as a beginning,、yeah. you know, per, per, per chance. And、exactly. so we're going to have very different interpretations of what it means.、Yeah. Um, and that's the kind of thing that happens all the time in history. Nothing is as is, is cut and dried as your introductory, you know, freshman year history books make it out to be. Right, absolutely.、Um, so. With that kind of as a, as a background, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the different. Um, approaches to history,、uh, historical writing,、uh, some of the focuses that different uh, famous, uh, you know, some of the more well known authors、uh, have, have taken, and some criticism of that,、um, in addition to what we like about it, I guess.、Uh, 
uh, and and also just kind of some some theory about how this all goes together. And hopefully, it'll give some of the listeners some insight into why you know you can't just say, "Well, I saw it in this book, and oh. that's what." So that's that must be the truth. It, it doesn't really it doesn't really work that way. There are some things that are, are, that are accepted by a majority or you know almost all people right. as fact, but there's a lot of things that are debated and they depend on your particular viewpoint. And you have Absolutely. to, um, you can't just say, well, such and such author said it. You have to understand where that author is coming from, what their viewpoint is. What their so methodology is. In ex- ex- how did they get that information? Exactly, and how did they come to the um, conclusion and I, that they came to? And, yeah. and I think to start, I mean, one aspect of that is sure. that number one, sources, you know, the actual original primary source, the original historical uh, evidence, is not necessarily as thorough. There isn't as much of it as you might think there is. Right. And even where there is, it has not necessarily been analyzed, been looked at. Um, I mean, things are constantly found in collections. Like, it's not, you don't even have to dig it up out of the ground. Sometimes people have things in their collection, they don't even know what it is or know why it's significant. Right. Um, but anyway, so, I mean, there's all kinds of gaps and then, you know, it's also just, there's bias, of course, which we'll probably end up discussing in a little bit, but there's also um, just, not even mistakes, like, oops, I made a mistake, but you have to make assumptions because yeah. of the gaps in the knowledge. Yeah, and, very much so. And then people either repeat your assumptions, which, you know, without actually knowing yeah. why it's backed up, or, you know, it's just um, misunderstood. Um, I mean, I could cite, I mean, for one particular example, which I know is rather obscure or whatever, but I'm going to cite that... George Kerr is basically, he published a book called Okinawa, uh, Okinawa, A History of, uh, The History of An Island People, which remains today basically the only sort of Sansom-style narrative history, Hmm. history of Okinawa. Suits nuts on Okinawa. Yeah. Yeah. History of Okinawa from beginning to uh, just after World War II. And uh, anyway, long story short, and it's a great book, um, but... Uh, long story short, he mentions in it somewhere that uh, Minamoto no Tame Tomo, um, who was, if I remember correctly, a nephew of Yoshiie, or a brother of Yoshiie. In any case, he was an uncle of Yoritomo, that, that much I know. Anyway, um, he mentions that Tame Tomo was the father of the first king of Okinawa, and uh, which is, I think most scholars today believe that to be a complete myth. But yeah, he just kind of doesn't sound. He just kind of says, oh yeah, you know, this is. <laughs> Uh, we we can't dis- we can't discount this because we just don't know. Yeah. Well, most people today, fifty years later, have discounted it. Mm. So yeah. well, kudos to him for mentioning it. Kudos to him, but that's, you know, that's what I would say. well, that's that's well, one of I'm those saying, things. I'm that saying just ten, twenty years earlier, that's, a different scholar yeah. might have said, "This is it. We know yeah. this is it. This is the, it's in it's in this oh. 1750s volume, primary yeah. sources. It says so there. Therefore, we trust it. Boom." Which yeah, is not that that comes into like one of the biggest problems as to why um, we have to constantly relook um, at at and history and and challenge you know what we what we see in it because I mean that that's exactly yeah. a, a perfect example. Early historians, and by early, I really mean anyone before the 1970s, yeah. which might sound strange to our, our listeners, but. Prior to that time, you didn't really have a whole lot of people who were looking at their sources critically. It was, yeah. it's written in a, in a document. You're reporting what they were reading. Yeah, well, and I, they, they're well, doing good work by synthesizing some of those sources and finding different examples of things, but... And especially in the Japanese language, there were very, very few Western scholars, uh, sure. uh, white sure. scholars, who could read Japanese before the 70s. Yeah. Right. Let alone so, Edo period Japanese are you know, more ancient. Right. 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 So what, what you end up having is you know uh, this this the, w- let's go ahead and talk about the problem of sources since you since you brought that sure. up and just in an, on a general theoretical level I mean you you know you and I can sit here and and explain to the to the listeners and I think they can understand that when you know we've had this discussion before and when we're talking about my research on Nagashino and the problems oh, yeah. with with primary sources that I've had. Right. Um, you know, <clears throat> just because a document was written in the 1600s doesn't mean that it's, that's the way things happened. In, no. in fact, it, it actually likely means that that's not what actually happened, that that's what 
Absolutely. The government, like or whoever was in power at the time, wanted you to think what was what was happening. Absolutely. Um, and, that's, and, and that's exactly the case with this Minamoto no Tomitomo business. Exactly. Um, it's, it's a really fun story, but it's... Yeah, I mean, things become, you know, come out of legend and get recorded, and, and the people of the time may or may not have believed them. Um, but that doesn't mean doesn't that... Make it true. Uh-huh, what's that? It yeah, doesn't it doesn't make, make it, it true. true at all. So, yeah, and I mean, it, you know, Travis Cridges, whenever I bring, bring him up, but I mean, this is the, you know, kind of point that uh, Foucault and other French philosophers yeah. from the 60s make. Foucault's um, all right, as long as you don't have to read him. Yeah, or Derrida, but... Um, oh, God, Derrida. Yeah, but but the point out of those that, that's valuable, and right. all you, the 30-second blurb that you need to know, and you never need, need to, to go through their books yeah. again... Is that you know the written word is not something that can be trusted because people write it. You know, a person with a particular viewpoint writes, you know, down whether it's a historian today or whether it's you know somebody a diarist in um, fifteen forty five. They're writing from their particular viewpoint and what they saw. Chris, you and I can go. We can walk outside for 10 minutes, just look around, come back in here, and then give completely different uh, descriptions of what's going on outside. Some of it's going to overlap, but, you know... I might be looking at one aspect of it, you might be looking at something Right, you're going to look at, you know, the construction outside and how annoying and 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 so forth. I'm going to... Look at the grasshoppers. I'm going to look at the nice... Yeah, you know, butterflies. (laughs) Certainly, you know, not any of the girls walking by short shorts just in case my wife's listening so anyway but but basically just the idea that knowledge i mean all everything that's written down everything that's put out there by scholars or or by anybody magazines anything is biased is influenced by other writings right by experiences by the difference between people and um i believe it's gramsci i might get the wrong philosopher but i believe it's gramsci who talks about particularly the importance of power mm-hmm. dynamics, right. power politics, and affecting that. So, you know, you'll write something because you believe that that's how you need to write it in order for your advisor to like it, or in, right. order, for, right, right. Or in order for the government to not uh, arrest you, or, you know. Yeah. Wh- whoever is in charge, you have to please them. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not written with an yes. eye towards what historians are going to think 500 years from now. It's written with an eye towards the people who right. are going to read this. What do I? How do I need to make yeah. it sound to them? Or actually, it may be written with an eye towards who you know somebody's going to read this 500 years from now. What do I want them to think? What do I want them to <laughs> true, believe? True. Yeah. 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 Okay, so, sense. so the the point of all this being that. Um, you have to take these sources and, and, and examine them and understand the authors and where their viewpoints are. Um, a, a good case in point, um, and you know, I try not to use too many Nagashino examples here, but as I was going through different, you know, I looked at about eight different primary sources. The problem with that is I couldn't just line up the primary sources and say, well, this one says, uh, you know, these five all say this fact is this way. Why couldn't I do that? Because four of them were all copying and adding their own spins right, and right. viewpoints, but they, they, the, uh, the, the Shinjoki written by Oze Hoan was used as a template for several other texts okay. to then write theirs on. Mm. So just because they also said, you know, that we'll, we'll say, oh yeah, Nobunaga had 3,000 guns. Right. Well, they were just copying that, that Hoan had said exactly. that. They weren't uh, you know, it's not a separate confirming account that I can look at and go, oh, well, here's another one that says it. It must be true. Yeah. And it's uh, the same thing with the Tametomo story. I mean, right. I mean, if you look at um, Arai Hakuseki, who was a very major advisor to the shoguns in the 1710s or so. Yes. Arai Hakuseki yeah. is a very, well, quote-unquote reliable source in, in certain respects. He's you know, a very prominent figure. Um, but... He talks about Tame Tomo, he presents it as fact because mm-hmm. he read about it in an official history of the Ryukyu Kingdom, right. which was written by a Ryukyuan royal advisor right. as a quote-unquote official history. What does an official history mean? It means it was written by that um, regime, sponsored. by that regime in order to benefit that regime. Right. In a particular case, that's a regime that is controlled by Satsuma and that, and that does not want to offend Satsuma by, mm. by by asserting that uh, uh, that Japanese claims to Ryukyuan 
you know, whatever, are, are in any way false. Right. Right. So, yeah, he's just going back and citing the Chuzan Seikon of 1650 as if it's total truth, which, of course, you know, I mean, it's, it's a history. Right. It's a quote official history, so it, it looks like it should be the truth, but it's written with very particular reasons in mind. Shoshoken was very pro-Japanese, um, whether because he believed, you know, that Japan had a lot to offer civilizationally, culturally, or because he just kind of felt like he had to in order to keep his head. I'm right. not quite sure at the right. sort of a debate, but... And then everybody quotes Arai Hakuseki because he's awesome. So you have a gazillion books throughout the Edo period saying, repeating the Tamitomo story from Arai Hakuseki. Sure. And, and he said it, so it must be and, true. And, and this happens, I mean, this happens over and over and over oh, again yeah. until it becomes, well, that's just the way it was because everybody says right. that's the way it was, but it's, it's, sort it's of circular the, because they're all right. getting it from the same one yeah. source. It's sort eventually. of the Fox News approach to knowledge. If you say it <laughs> enough, it becomes true. Or the uh, samurai hated guns and worshipped Bushido. That, that sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. If you say it enough, it exactly. becomes which, true. Which really, I mean, it's it's funny because, you know, academically speaking, nobody even pays attention to that. Like, it's it's hard to find things, you know, other than, like, the occasional article by uh, Carl Friday or something that, awesome. that, that talk about that because nobody believes it in the first place because there's no evidence of it, so you don't need to, quote-unquote, debunk it. Yeah. But in any um, case, going back to the original idea of... Um, you know, when I was, before I started studying history, particularly before I was in grad school, right, it, I sort of had the impression that basically most bias in history came from secondary sources, from scholars misinterpreting or, or you know, otherwise sort of right. differently right. interpreting right. The, the, the true primary sources. Mm. But in point of fact, primary sources have a ton of bias in them. Right. And secondary sources, of course, have bias in them too, but at least at least to some extent you can trust or, or at least want to trust a scholar who has um, you know taken that in, in, in mind and who has tried to get rid of the bias or has tried to seek the truth well and, and we could go on forever about I mean and a theory, a theory class will tell you there is no yeah. truth and, and there's that's, no such thing as truth and that's a whole other issue but <laughs> yeah let's not go that far I don't want to but, go in there um, I will, and, and that that's that's why we say you know you have to look at who it is you're, you're reading. I mean, certain authors I will trust more than others, but I, I, don't, I don't think there's any author that I, at, at this point, would unequivocally say, oh, well, everything he says is 100% correct. Yeah, no, um, you have because to. That's, that's, Although that's I can think of at least works. one uh, historian who you would choose to doubt more often than not. Um, well, there's probably a few. There's but, quite a few. Yeah. But... Um, but yeah, I mean that's that's what critical reading. We, we is. may or may not cover that, but um, <laughs> yes, that's that's what critical reading sure. is. Sure. So, so um, but that 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 leads us into okay. So so where who were the first secondary sources? Who were the first historians that really um, started publishing in in English that we get some of this yeah, from? Yeah, and some of them were. Some of them were, well, you know. I mean, that's um, how far back you want to go. Yeah. yeah. Let, let's you know, looking at kind of like the early. We've got, we've got like Murdoch and then Sansom are the two. Um, Murdoch and Sansom were the first guys I was, I was going to bring up. Yeah. Um, Sadler, I will also say, even though he was you know earlier than them, fifty years earlier than them. But when was Sadler? Um, Sadler was um, up through like from the eighteen nineties to the nineteen thirties. Oh, okay, so that's basically what um, I was thinking of because yeah. people like Fenelosa and Okakura. Was it Murdoch uh, around the nineteen tens? Um, no, Murdoch was later than that. I'm fairly sure. But I mean, you definitely have people. Or maybe I'm thinking of, no, I'm thinking of Morris. So Murdoch might have been. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so okay, so the first generation of folks. And it's also under, t important to understand the context of that particular historian. Right. Because you have somebody like Sadler, or you have somebody like um, um, Murdoch, or, or who was it that you mentioned? I was talking about Fenelosa and Okokura. Okay. Although so, Okokura is Japanese, so it's kind of a different story. Okay, but, but in, you can include them him as, as well in the sense that you know they go over in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Right. Japan is a new entity. Japan has just entered the quote unquote modern world. Right. Uh, opened up quote unquote, even though yeah, we'll, oh God. we'll not we'll not start the sock open yeah. debate. But we need to do a whole podcast on that. Yeah, yeah I think we'll um, eventually. But anyway, 
the first group that's going there is writing to educate a, an audience back in the West that right. has no clue. Lafcadio Hearn. Lafcadio Hearn is, is an ex excellent example in the world of literature. Right. Um, so everything is new and different and exotic. And so that's and they're just how they're presenting what they find it. And, yeah. Well, but but they're 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 reporting what they find, but they're but, also but, presenting it as a look at this completely different world than the than the one that we come from. And, right, right. And this is where we get a lot of that, you know, the noble samurai and the the you know uh, so on and, and so forth. It's not to mention, you know, they're doing this in the Meiji period where it was sort of the Meiji government's uh, goal to. Yeah. Sort of, and that's why I say that you can include history. the Japanese authors as well because right. they're trying to create. They see the West's history, and they're trying to exactly. build theirs in the same manner that it can compete on a world stage. Yeah, right. try, try to justify their right. their position yeah. and and right. show their military history and prowess, sure. et cetera. Right. Sure. And this is also, I mean, this is showcasing basically is what yes. they're trying to do. This is yes. also, you know, 70, 80 years before certain developments in, in sort of acknowledging that certain approaches are not cool anymore. Right. I, I don't want to say the S words, so we're not going to name him, but certain uh, certain writers who uh, asserted that, you know, Western scholarship was just, was intentionally representing the East as, uh, the quote-unquote East, as, um, you know, as intentionally exotic and, and just approaching it from a certain point of view, a certain romanticized point of view. So that, that, is this the Orientalism? That represents, uh, yes. Okay. Yes, that represents the whole thing as basically a, a fake, perpetuating a fake... Well, I think that's a very valid criticism of the people right. that, you know, in the early period that we're talking about. So in any case, I'm just trying to ca characterize what we see in the very beginning. Sure. It's not entirely invalid by no means, but that's it was at that time there was no conception that this was in any way an inappropriate... Or, or even inaccurate approach. Right, and none of it is is necessarily intentionally no. inaccurate or anything like that. No. But you know, you caveat emptor. I mean, you have to be aware of, of what it is you're reading. I love reading Sadler's biography of Tokugawa Ieyasu, and some of these guys. But are probably, yeah. it's like reading a children's book at times. Um, yeah. And some of these guys were probably very intentionally trying to promote Japan. Yes. As. Yes whatever, as civilized, as peaceful, as whatever, as beautiful. Well, they had an agenda all the way up through World War II, right. Japan itself, so, so, so right. a lot of it was, uh, you know, I was reading, I don't remember the article, but, you know, historians being just fired from their positions for even insinuating what, you know, what the actual facts were in sure, certain sure. historical cases yeah. of but it's, yeah. things with, like, Himiko and, and right, right, uh, right. you know, ancient but Japan. Yeah. But it's not all about the government sort of imposing... I mean that, that absolutely went in that on. particular case, yeah. But I see what you mean. Not not but, generally speaking. Yeah, but the same thing is plenty of people who are just doing it for their own. You know, as an American yeah. who likes yeah. Japan, uh, who's, who's, yeah. who has quote unquote discovered Japan, I want to share. What right. I, so like well, a, a 19th like, century, like, we're talking like, about like going into yeah. You know, if you, you talk know. about um, if you talk about Sansom, uh, who I mean, he's a bedrock of Japanese history scholarship. Yeah. Uh, in the you know he, he's what what's termed a cultural historian. Um, he wrote a short cultural history of Japan, and then he also wrote yeah. uh, the three-volume history of Japan. Yeah. Is he really and a cultural historian? He he is he is yeah. If you if you he doesn't probably he doesn't focus on culture to the point where you right. like because he's not a theater guy or he's not a right. whatever. But, but if you but if he he's not very much focuses guy. on elite <laughs> culture. But if you read his his three-volume set. I mean, it's sort of a narrative history of politics and economics and social development. It's not really cultural. Yes, but if, well, I mean, we'll talk about Hall and, and uh, okay. Mass in a minute, but those guys are institutional mm. history, where, where Sansom is not nearly Fair to enough. that extent. Yeah, it, um, relative, yeah, yeah. So, anyway, but, but Sansom does the same thing. There were several points in, in his um, a short, short cultural history of Japan where it's obvious that he's trying to praise Japan or explain it to a to a to a Western audience that wouldn't be familiar. But he he uses phrasing that is very like today you would just you just cringe reading where he's, oh, yeah. he's talking about their their fascination with magic in the Nada period. Well, you know, it's it's not like Europeans weren't yeah exactly weren't <laughs> believing in magic in the 700s in in Europe either. But right in the 1200s, yeah, let yeah. alone the 1700s. <laughs> but um, anyway, so it. it you know that's something that you have to to filter 
uh, for as well. But um, as we get into, um, Sansom would have been the, uh, you know, around the, the 50s and yeah. early 60s. Yeah, his three volume set. Um, his three volume set was early 60s. Early 60s. Um, the, which, uh, so I know, I say, often enough that I remember the years. Yes, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a, like I said, it's a bedrock of, of Japanese history scholarship. It's probably um, as in depth as you're, you know, you'll you'll find a a uh, right. a an overarching history of Japan. Yeah. It's dated, yeah. Uh, and part of that come, you know, is uh, the fact that you know, like we talked about with sources before, sources sources change, uh, so opinions of sources change, and some things that. You know, he would take for granted today. Today, we question or, or right. have Absolutely. been proven to be wrong. Yeah. Um, I, so, yeah, go ahead. And I, and I think the very concept of—I mean, I don't know—I I, I feel like I feel like the the discipline of history today mm. is so much more about sort of acknowledging and accepting that at the core we cannot know. Right. And everything is in question. Everything is in debate. You know, I think earlier. Maybe I, I don't really know Sansom inside and out that well, but I mean, I think earlier there was definitely this idea that this is what happened. This is the narrative history, you know. Yeah, certainly. We know names, certainly. we know dates, we know events, certainly. and and just sort of the the way that it's put forward, particularly by Sansom and, and you know many other people, but the way it's put forward is sort of like this is the story, this is the truth, whereas as best as we know it or whatever, but without even without even saying as best as we know it. Right. Whereas I think today, you know, it's all about yeah. footnotes or even having entire articles that are just like, we don't really know, it kind of could be like this, it kind of could be like that, you know, acknowledging yes. the, uh, yeah. Well, and I, and I think, um, you know, like you said earlier, a lot of historical work, because we don't have television footage of what happened in 14, right. you know, 37. Right. Uh, so you you have to piece it together, and there's going to be missing blocks, and you you can only piece them together as best you you were able, um, with whatever knowledge base that that, yeah. that you have as a as a historian, um, and sometimes you get it wrong. You know, historians get it wrong. Um, I mean, that's one of the things uh, you know that I've seen in my own research, and and sometimes you know you're looking for an answer to to. A certain question, so that's what you're focused on, and you miss this other stuff, right? Or you just kind of gloss past it and write it down what your impression of it is. But but you get that part wrong, and it um, and it uh, somebody else later comes along and says, well, no, that's not right. Yeah. It's or a constant process absolutely. of 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 revision and relooking at, at things. Yeah. Or you're citing somebody who you think you can trust, or you you're citing yeah. somebody who, who you trust. And they have citations, and those people yeah. say the same thing, and they have citations. Right. And they all say giving up the gun. <laughs> and when you go back to the primary source, sometimes, in this particular example that don't, I'm thinking don't, of... Don't, 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 don't start me. Don't start me. Sometimes, in this particular example that I'm thinking of, you actually, the primary source is reliable, or, right. it, or has to be reliable, and you go back and you say, <clears throat> you know... So and so in the 1930s mistranslated this passage, yeah. and everybody else since that tr uh, quoted him. Right, has never gone back to verify it themselves. They just assume that because he was a well-known person or you know yeah. tr a, a generally trustable guy, yeah. that that's the way it was. I mean, I, I just read an article published in 2010 mm -hmm. that takes a particular passage from a uh, Satsuma Han edict mm -hmm. and weighs it out right there in in Kanbun in the quote-unquote supposedly a, a supposedly an accurate transcription of the original okay. with the translation into modern Japanese next to it explaining that what so-and-so in the 1930s asserted and what everyone else was citing since then is not here. Look at it yourself. It's not here. Right. So, I mean, again, right. it's sort of did he, did he transcribe it properly? Did he translate it properly? I don't read Kanbun. I don't know. But, but you know, it's like, oh, well... You know, everyone else has been citing it wrong, according to this guy. Right. So, these all, all these kinds of things can always be put back into question, and and I mean, and the concept of the concept of Japan being closed, which we don't yeah. have to go into, but just you know, Sansom would state it like this is how it was. This right. Is how we know that it was. I don't know exactly who he's citing or whatever, but 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 it's everybody said the same thing. Well, and this is how it was. Sure. Boom. But. 
at some point you, you, you go back and you, you question it. And you go, no, let's, let's, let's take that as an example and run with it, though, because, see, I think that's an excellent example in, in historiography, because Sakoku, the, the yeah. supposed policy of closing Japan to foreign contact, foreign trade right. through the Edo period, is almost taken as a given by right. a lot of people who read basic Japanese history. And if you read any general Japanese history in English, it's going to say that. Absolutely. Um, the problem with that is one of viewpoint, because if you look well, at, well, you, any, you have any, much more any, any basic Any basic history of Japan written before, let's say, 1990s. Okay. So what, what, the, the authors that were, were writing that, you know, let's face it, they were looking at contact, they weren't looking at, at, at Japan as a whole or whatever, they were looking at contact with Europeans. Yes. Because it was done in reaction to the, you know, issues with the, uh, with the Portuguese and the, right. and the, the, the right. Catholic missionaries and, and so forth. And it's only been very recently that anybody has thought to um, look at Japanese relations with Asia. Right. I mean, and that's, that goes back to Foucault's discourse concept. It's just like, it, it's just, it's, it's a black, it's a blind spot in your thinking. Right. You know, it's, it's, yeah. It's not that anyone was intentionally trying to avoid it or anything. It just didn't occur to people because their they, they just their conception yeah their conception of the world means being, being open, open to Europeans to, exactly yeah so um, you have what you end up having is you know this characterization of Japan as closed off when they were closed off to certain section of your of Europeans right you know everybody knows about the quote unquote Dutch exception where they were right. allowed to go to Dejima and, and so on and so forth but still that's another European group that doesn't mean that the Chinese weren't trading that doesn't mean that you know I mean yeah. they were uh, as I just read recently the uh, the, the great um, book by um, by Brett Walker the conquest of uh, Ainu lands oh, ecology absolutely. and culture and Japanese expansion yeah. you know I haven't read the book they, but I, I just met it's, Dr. Walker it's, it's a fantastic book um, I read and, some of his articles and it talks about the you know Japan's Interaction and eventually colonial expansion into Hokkaido right. uh, at the expense of the uh, the Ainu. But I mean, during this whole time, they're trading with the Ainu as a separate entity, not right. as you know this was part of Japan. Um, and the Ainu were trading with uh, Russia. the Russian, yeah. you know, Russia and the uh, the the different groups in the uh, you know in the mainland Asia and so trade was coming through the Ainu right uh, into that you know there was lots of trade going on in, in the uh, Ryukyu which you're right you know much more up on than I am but I'm with Korea um, yeah the, the, I mean the point is that you know in no way shape or form was Japan totally closed off there was like this big sea wall built around it and nobody could come in or out right but that's the impression that because they're focused on the Europeans um, early historians, you know, give us, right. and then that becomes this monolithic, you know, right. oh well, that's just how it was. Well, it's it's not, yeah. but you have to delve into that, you know, you have to you have to really get into that. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it's about taking a, a Japanese point of view in a way, rather mm -hmm. than, you know, as an American, you take it for granted that you know we Americans, we we do not have access to Japan. And so we opened, quote unquote, opened Japan, and so you, you just kind of fall into that trap, so right. to speak, because um, it's the the discourse in which um, you know just from being an American and thinking about what America had access to, did not have access to Japan, right. before Japan must have been closed. The the other thing um, that I want to point out about this period, authors writing in this period, was that uh, you know for guys like um, Sansom or Varley, right. when they're writing about culture, they're writing about you know what what would be termed high culture, hmm. you know the culture of the court, the culture sure. of the aristocracy, uh, that's tea, what's in, and that's why you see tea ceremony and oh, yeah. and um, you know uh, religious texts and sure. and and all this stuff figure so prominently um, because it's zen because so it's attractive, forth. right? And so you want to talk about it because that's what's exotic and and attractive, right? So so that's and where we get this impression of you know. Uh, everybody in medieval Japan was practicing their Zen and uh, doing tea ceremony and right. uh, you know and watching no plays and watching no plays and participating in linked verse uh, because right. that's what the court was doing and 
you know, that's who the political elite were, so that's who the authors were focused on. And so, uh, on that note, why don't you kind of get, in, get into the differences between institutional versus cultural history? Okay. Um, well, they're really, those two are, are really two sides of the same coin, I would almost say, mm -hmm. is that because they're both focused on who's in power. They're both, um, you know, and God, I hate how Foucaultian I'm, Foucaultian I'm sounding here, but um, because I like institutional history and I've been accused of being an institutional historian, but they, you know, the, the, the cultural history is focusing on what did they do to create culture, you know, the, the stuff that we just mentioned, the, the linked verse and the, uh, right. you know, the Zen and things and, that trickle and, down and, from and, and so on. And yes, and eventually trickle down to to most of society. But you know, they're practiced at a very politically high level and and economically high level. Uh, institutional historians are looking at the movement of government and the you know who's in charge, how are they, how do they take power. Um, how to you know and and they're focused on on these big almost big ticket items I, I, I'd like to say as mm -hmm. you know war taxation um, how do I you know how how am I becoming the ruler of the country or the shogun right succession how, disputes yeah you know succession disputes these kinds of things so um, they focus on what you would see in a timeline of events if you were to look at like right. um, Japanese history and the big bullet point timelines you know we have uh, you know, 1467, Onin War starts. Uh, 1568, uh, Nobunaga goes in and installs um, Ashikaga Yoshiaki as the shogun. Uh, you right. know, 1600, Sekigahara. 1603, Tokugawa Ieyasu becomes shogun. That's the kind of thing that these guys um, were looking at. And, and um, you know, you, you have, uh, in the institutional history camp, you have guys like uh, John Whitney Hall, uh, Jeffrey Mass, uh, Peter Arneson, some some of these others who they focus on on governing institutions. Uh, Mass was like the the Kamakura Bakufu guy, mm. and if you wanted to know anything about Yoritomo, he's the guy to go read. Right. Um, y you know, uh, Hall has a and and I I still think it's fantastic even after arguing with Professor Ferris about it. John Whitney Hall's book, uh, Government and Local Power in Japan, um, uh, 500 to 1700. And Hall actually edited you know, an edited volume of essays by different scholars sure. called Studies in the Institutional History yes. of Early Modern right. Japan. Yes. So um, it's, it's very, you know, directly that's what it is. Yes. And, and you know, he and, he and, well, he and Mass um, were the editors for Medieval Japan, Essays in Institutional History. As well, so there you go. See? the uh, but but these guys, I mean, they focus on you know who are the power brokers, how did they rule, how did they maintain, lose power, right. um, how did they set up taxation and, and so forth, and it's good if that's what you're looking at. the The criticism of these guys uh, that that I I see and I and I somewhat agree with is that they're focused on the upper strata of society. Sure, and you know. The commoners, the peasants, the merchants, uh, everybody underneath them, is just kind of flotsam and jetsam. They're 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 they they don't affect anything. They don't, um, you know, because let's face it, you know, peasant Ichiro isn't doesn't have a major effect on the flows flow right, of history. Right. And Oda Nobunaga did. Right. So we're going to study him. Yeah. And in a lot of these things, I guess, depending on their approach, I haven't actually read all of these scholars, yeah. but. You know, a lot of them, the peasants or the commoners become basically statistics. Yes. Right? Yes. They're not, yes. They're not even really sort of, but it's People. just sort of. They're, yeah, they're, they, they're, they, they, they relate in as much as how you much know, rice they produced. Exactly. Or, they had to. They they were the, the the tax base that the ruling people. You know, took their their economic livelihood from, okay. and it becomes somewhat more. Abstract. But they're a faceless multitude. Thank you. That's a very good way to put it. And and it becomes sort of a, I mean, kind of sort of abstracted right. in certain ways. Right. In the sense of, you have a state that right. is ruled by a government that functions in this way, right. and the peasants produce this much rice and is taxed in this way, and it's sort of, it's not even really Japan. It's not about Japanese culture. It's not about the way that Japan's different from other places. It's about if we hypothetically had a state that was run in this way, that produced this much, 
and how it was distributed in this way, how might a state function? Well, and that's a, that's a very right. good um, point Which about I, institutional history, right. is not, that, not that all of those these guys focus on Japan, out, but, but, but in, a, in a larger context, you know, you're looking at it as even classifying Japan as a state. Oh, that's I mean, a whole other issue. Well, but these guys did because that's what the model was for them, and they took that from you know. Oh, that's yeah. why you have. It's only been questions later, right? Yeah, that was only question later. That's why we have such a, a debate about what you know was. Did Japan even have a medieval period or a feudal period? Oh yeah. Um, or whatever, because they were classifying Japanese history in terms of Western models, right? You know, and comparing the the system that that took place in Japan under Yoritomo and. Well, does this fit with you know, twelfth-century French feudalism in the same way? Uh, does it does it match that? Is it an equivalent? Okay, yes. Well, close enough. Well, we'll call it feudalism. Yeah. In Japan's Renaissance, that book actually addressed a lot of that. Right. Right. Um, so if I could uh, sure. throw this out here, so I, I guess my understanding then would be you have cultural history and you have institutional history. Institutional history, and so the institutional history is kind of like a train. It's it's. This, this is what's taking the country from this point A to point B. The culture is more like what's happening on the train because it's not necessarily driving the train, it's not necessarily part of the, the, yeah. the machinery that is moving things forward, but it's kind of the, the extraneous stuff that's going on around the train. Yeah. I, I, would, kind of I, I think that's way. not a bad analogy. I like that, um, especially the institutional part because it is very much focused, right. and both of them are very much focused on how did we get what are the what are the stations as you will yeah. that the train passed through to get to where it is today but you're implying that then there's yet another methodology and we'll get to that in a second wow okay sure um you've got a plan i, I <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll get, no, again i just went through this in a good, so. okay. um but the the thing the other important thing to understand about institutional history is and, and any history really is now, the historians are a product of their time as well. Of course. Um, if you look at the study of Japanese culture, you know, everybody, I think most people were probably familiar with Nihonjin Ron and, oh and uh, Ruth Benedict and, and, you know, the what are the Japanese and we have to figure out the they're Japanese. Really, they're inscrutable. You know. Yeah, or, or if you look at the, uh, the quote unquote historians, I guess more, more like ethnographers who studied the Ainu in like the late 19th century. Sure. Where it's, it's, which I would call something like bombastically racist. Well, like, like yes. <laughs> Bombastic is a yeah. word. Which, <laughs> where where they, they, they're just, uh, you know, they're, they're just making great, making tremendous assumptions about everything through their lens of European exactly. eyes or whatever. The, the, the point I'm trying to get to is, is it, it, Ruth Benedict, I think, is a good case that we talked about in, in one of my classes is, you know, the chrysanthemum and the sword. The, the chrysanthemum and the sword is, is was her book, and it was supposedly this you know wonderful study of Japanese behavior, and um, it basically tried to boil everything down to these little you know this is the way all Japanese are generalizations. And anyway, we won't go too much into that. But the point of all of it is, and, and the same thing with the cultural historians, and the same thing with with institutional history uh, to an extent, is that especially for historians from the West who are writing for a Western audience, they're trying to explain what Japan is. And how it got there. And how it got there. Yeah. So if you're you know, coming out of World War II, going into the 50s and then, and, oh, yes. and then the 60s, and dealing with Japan as a, you know, as a con this country that, you know, and this is the formative experience for most of the people who ended up becoming historians in this time frame. The guys who were writing in the 60s learned Japanese in the 40s in the military or, you know, during the occupation at, while they right. were working over there. So, so that's their formative experience. And so they're writing from the standpoint of we have this country called Japan. It doesn't really fit any of our understanding of the way the world works from a European perspective. Let's try to cram what parts we can into a European frame, or, you know, a, a American slash European framework, and then let's look at the parts that don't fit and try to figure out how to explain them. Hmm. So that's that's where they're coming from, um, which explains why a lot of people today criticize those approaches to to history because, well, they're. Why fit it into a, a, a your you know a Western perspective when it's not Western? It doesn't 
need to necessarily. Yeah. Um, it needs to be understood as its own entity, um, but not as an exoticized entity either. It's you know there are some things that are the same. There are some things that are different, and they need just need to be. Um, and that I mean, and it goes back to what you were saying about motivation, or, or you know, I mean, people are shaped by by where they come from, by yes. the, by the situation in which yeah. they come from, and at that time, I'm sure that there was there was a desire in the late 40s, 50s, early 60s. There's a desire to show the West that Japan is not solely or not even at all anymore, you know, a military empire or whatever, but that. To sort of, you know, here's the history of Japan because it's it's worth. Well, they have to remake the image of Japan. Exactly. So they have to go back and you know part of it is going back into history and showing that um, you know they have this you know history with, filled with these wonderful bits of culture like tea ceremony right. and ukiyo-e painting I mean, in, in and ways it's so not it's not too different from you know the sort of the boom in Midi in uh, Mid East studies right now. Right. In terms of those people, I mean. Those people who are particularly interested in sort of, you know, the, 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 the noble, great Arab history, history of Arabic contributions to culture and math and science, right? Um, sure. So it's the same kind of thing. You're coming from at, at a certain point in time, and you're trying to, you know. I mean, George Kerr was writing in 1950-something at a time when it was completely unclear whether the U.S. would ever give Okinawa back at all. Right. Or whether Okinawa was going to remain completely under military rule for the, in, you know, for the unforeseeable By the U.S. By, by, by the US. U.S. for the foreseeable future. And so the entire thing is therefore colored by this conception of the Okinawans as victims, as a purely peaceful people, which is a whole other myth, that King so-and-so abolished weapons and collected all the weapons and burned them, or melted them down into plowshares. Um, Which was the start of the whole Okinawan karate mythology of they learned martial arts because they didn't have any weapons on hand and such and right, such. Right, right. Which is nonsense. Because, yeah. I mean, karate might mean empty hand, but, I mean, they aren't they the same people who also, well, more or less, I mean, they, they use nunchaku, they use all kinds of Yeah, things. they have plenty of weapons. Plenty of weapons. Anyway... But yeah, so it's just, I'm just saying, it's sort of, you know, you come from, whether consciously or unconsciously, you're coming from a certain point of view. You know, I'm sure there were people in the 80s who sure. were trying to say that Japan is, there were plenty of people in the 80s who were not necessarily historians, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. but there were plenty of people in the 80s who were saying that Japan is dangerous and should be watched out for because it's going to take over the world and it's going to destroy the American economy. Um, oh, yeah, right? certainly. I mean, right? you know, and today I'm not quite sure what the go, re go read or watch Rising Sun. But, yeah, or, or watch, uh, watch Gung Ho. Yeah, right. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not quite sure exactly what the overriding Baseball. theme might be today. <laughs> Mr. Uh, Baseball is a great movie, and I will not stand for you smirching its name, good sir. Yeah, I like that movie. I also um, like Gung Ho with uh, Michael Keaton. Chinichi Dragons are <laughs> awesome. Anyway, so go ahead. Red Sun with, with, with Toshiro Mifune and uh, Charles Bronson. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Okay, so we basically we've we've touched on cultural history, we've touched on institutional history, and then you've been implying that there's yet another approach to history. So what uh, what let, let's go into what you're, you've been sort of implying there. Okay, well, I, there there's a lot of other approaches to history, but where I would say that that more current approaches, um, you know, to kind of classify them all together, I, I guess, differ from those two, um, is that. Uh, is, is this idea of questioning what what you're looking at, number one. Uh, and number two, difference in topic and difference in, in how they approach uh, their topics. And what I mean by that is we talked about institutional history and, you know, the focus on the political elites and that the peasants were just a... a statistic. Statistic, that they were just a, a faceless mass that produced rice and, you know, and, and so forth. You know, there's a lot of different, uh, you know, more more current writers look at that and say, well, you know, they're the, you know, something like 80% of the population. Right. Why are we just overlooking them and not paying attention to what was going on in their lives? And so you have, uh, you know, different authors like uh, Pierre Sourier, and, um, uh, who's a French uh, historian uh, who, who kind of follows an interesting methodology called the Annals School, um, which 
I'm not really qualified to say what they do other than the fact that they try to turn everything they can upside down. So if you read um, his book, uh, Suri's The World Turned Upside Down, uh, he kind of, you know, it's really interesting, but it, it's almost like a scattershot of different stuff. You know, you'll have a chapter about uh, peasant riots and, uh, you know, this, this game of stone throwing where groups of people would just randomly show up on riverbanks and it'd be like a big contest, you know, throwing stones at, you know, they divide into two sides and throw stones at each other as a, as a contest, mm-hmm. but these would develop into riots. Sure. Um, because they were so violent, and but you're reading it, and you're like, okay, well, that's an interesting tidbit. Where is he really going with this? And then he'll move on to something else, and and, and, and so write it's that. Uh, it's okay. I, so I understand. I the, this much of the concept makes sense. This is the the multitudes, the faceless multitudes who sure. aren't represented in history. They're right. kind of looking at, and and I I find that I've always found that sort of thing interesting myself. But definitely. You would you would want to kind of see where in the big picture this all fits, and what so what I, what are I they would, trying to accomplish if they're not trying to? Well, sort of what what you have to do, and and somebody who does a really good job of this is Ferris. And I, I don't say this simply because I'm waiting for my grade in his class uh, to post, but um, William Wayne Ferris, who is a professor here at, at UH, uh, and full disclosure, I just finished his his class on pre-modern Japan. Um, he he. Especially in uh, his book, uh, J- you know, the uh, Japan's medieval population, uh, does a really good job at, at looking at this group and explaining why they're important. You know, why, you know, it's not just little anecdotes of festivals and stone throwing and, and stuff like that. Yeah, it seems like those really lack context. It's yeah, and that's what I want out of it. I mean, he looks at it, but we kind of have different viewpoints on this. I, um, his his viewpoint is that. The peasantry and the, the majority of the population, like that, is the context, and or is the um, it, that's the biggest thing. And then they, per, on top of that, you can put the political elite, and and they're doing their thing. But you have to understand it. And the majority, it starts with the majority of the population. Um, and he he writes about how you know wars affected the population and, and disease and and um, uh, and and so forth. For me, what I want to know about, it's not that one is more important and the other is more important to me. Um, what I want to know about is the political elites. That's what I study, in the, in the, specifically on the military aspect. But the value I see in his approach is that, um, for instance, uh, let's, you know, the Genpei War. Uh, there's a period in the Genpei War uh, where the Minamoto and the Taira, there's no fighting going on for like a year, year and change. Mm-hmm. Um, and like if you were reading Sansom or Hall about it, they just kind of skip over it. They're just like, well, you know, no battles happen, so there's nothing here to write here, and they move on, right? Right. Um, well, somebody like uh, Ferris looks at that and says, okay, well, why weren't they? Why was was this not going on? What was going on here? Um, and so he goes in and he, and he goes in and he looks at it or whatever. It was. Yeah, and and there was there was um, bad weather patterns, which led to you know uh, famine and. Basically, neither army had enough rice to sustain a campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, the difference is, and, and this is the interesting thing about it that I get out of it, yeah. is that if you look at it, Western Japan, which was the tired of base, got hit much worse than Eastern Japan. Western Japan, um, you know, was basically you know nothing but famine. Eastern Japan had pockets of it, and they, they but but they had also you know some decent harvest, and and they were able to sustain themselves okay. So what you end up having is a, a year where there's no fighting taking place, but the Taira aren't surviving because their their whole um, power base is is in famine. So they're weakening, whereas the the Minamoto, based in eastern Japan, is doing okay and is able to basically sit tight for a year, and then go defeat, go invade and defeat a weaker Taira. Hmm. And as a military historian, that's important to know. How is that affecting? I mean, because it's not just oh well, you know, it's not also had a better had a better political plan, yeah. or Yoshitsune had better tactics at such and such battle. It's you know things like that have serious effects, and unless you get to that, you know, what was going on with the population, what was going on, 
yeah, Ferris is a really good. Uh, you know, he's had his 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 arguments with other historians on on other things, but um, but that's one of the things that I I really got out of this class was mm-hmm. that if you you know you have to look at these other um, other aspects because they they affect you know why does um, you know Oda Nobunaga want to invade a certain area you know, a certain province or, or, or whatever. Well, it's because it's producing. Why is it producing? Because it has, you know, certain qualities that the peasants make up, you know? Mm. And and so it it helps, for me, it helps flesh out the details and, and explain a lot of the things that somebody like Hall or somebody like Mass can't explain mm-hmm. or, or don't even think about coming up with e- explanations for. Yeah. Um, at the same time, I mean, I think, and that's... That's very valuable, and I think any any and every approach is valuable in its own way. Is there a term for that uh, type of approach? Um, like like microeconomic history, or I don't know. Well, mm-hmm. e- economic history would be slightly yeah. different. Micro um, historical eco- history. Um, uh, yeah, something. there's there's ecological history, uh, which you know looks at things like the weather patterns and disease and. Right. Famine and um, geography and deforestation, and and that's actually um, the uh, the the book on Hokkaido that I, I mentioned earlier. Yeah, Brett Walker. Uh, Brett Walker's book is an ecological history. Is an ecological yeah, and he history. wrote a book about the wolves disappearing in Japan too, right? He yes, did, he did. And yes, he, and he just he just finished yes. a book called Toxic Archipelago yeah. about sort of post-war. Um, um, yeah, you know. Yeah. And if, if you had told me, and, yeah. if you had told me four months ago that I would, you know care for two seconds about ecological history, I would have told you you were nuts. Because, you right. know, I'm interested in, you know, guys beating each other, you know, chopping each off, other with spears. Chopping off uh, each other's hands with, uh, you know, and heads with, uh, with, with swords and right. stuff. What, how does that affect what I'm looking at? But, you know, it does in the, very, in the way that I just, yeah. that I just talked about. Um, the uh, uh, economic history, you know, you have um, guys like uh, Kozo Yamamura and Keiji, who were giants in the field, um, and they look at, you know, the, the, the I mean, they're kind of the same period as Hall and and uh, and yeah, and, and, and Mass, but, but but they looked, you know, very much at, you know, how did the economy develop and how did you know uh, coins come right. into circulation and what the, what effect that that had in market systems and so forth. Right. Um, you also have, uh, and, and Joseph's not here, but he would uh, he would kill us all in our sleep if we didn't mention, uh, you know, someone like Gina Barnes, right? Uh, who's look who who does uh, archaeological history, history. Yeah. Um, and that's something that that is important to point out that a lot of these, um, excuse me, you know, uh, historians before the nineteen seventies. You know, there wasn't archaeological excavation being done. Yeah, and they're like, why do we need to dig stuff out of the ground when you have everything written down? Exactly. Right. That's what, when you recognize that the textual, that the, that the books, that you know, the yeah. written documents and sources are flawed, you have to go search for other things to either confirm it or, or disprove it. Right. And, uh, and archaeological evidence is, I mean, that's hard fact right there. Right. That's, you know, you find something, it's there. Yeah. Um, I think it's important to note that archaeology, and I always for a long time thought archaeology only pertains to prehistoric or, or certain very, very... Yeah, my, my impression but, used to be very different yeah. than it is now. But archaeology absolutely pertains to every period. Certainly. Constantly. Certainly. You know, I mean, there, there were two major um, discoveries this is past week of uh, 12th century discoveries, Weyhound period discoveries. Oh, okay. And then, you know, but I mean, digging up Edo period daimyo mansions, digging up... Uh, Japanese submarines out of Pearl Harbor. Yeah. Um, you know. Yeah. Well, the Mongol ship that was found a couple ship. months ago. Exactly. exactly. Uh, no, we're re- recreating the the, uh, the ancient uh, Japanese towns from the you know like the sixth century or fifth right, century. Right. 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 Yeah. Um, but also, you know, I mean, yeah, throughout I mean, history, all, all later it, periods. Because we don't have written evidence, written written evidence. Listen to me. Written uh, documentation of anything prior to about. The 700s, right? Um, that's, it, that's when archaeology. You, you have to have archaeology before that, and that's because um, Joseph's focus is is you know the Asuka and, and Kofun periods. Kofun periods. That's what he works with. Um, but it's just like I would love to see archaeological research done on Nagashino. Right. Right. Um, Absolutely. To you know, uh, and it, 
it's hard to know whether that would um, how much that would help because topography changes and you know right. things that were once you know empty fields are now rice paddies and have been dredged Depending up what and, you find. And, and so on and so forth and just because you find something in one place doesn't mean that's where it, or it originated and I, I'm listing off my objections that I go into in my paper so I'll stop but um, <laughs> but the, the, I mean the point of it is is that it's not as simple as going into Sansom's history and looking at what he writes about something and say oh well this is the way it was right um, right you're going to have, a, you know, you have all these different viewpoints, and they all are that that are current now, and they're all valid. Just because I don't look at the same thing as Ferris or or uh, Brett Walker necessarily doesn't mean that you know I can discount what they say. And it's important. I, I think it's great because. It shows you different things that you might have missed in what you're what you're trying to do. You know, there's there's uh, it, it gets contentious uh, sometimes because you know authors, historians, professors, they're human. They have egos. Right. <laughs> you know, they all want to be they all want to be right. And it, um, if if someone you know writes something that goes against you know it, that counters what you've written, then that's where we see something like Fujimoto Masayuki punching out a uh, professor yeah, at the yeah, AAS conference. Yeah, yeah on, on, on <laughs> April 1st. And it um, But, uh, you know, I mean, you, you get people who, are, who get worked up about that, but I, I think that that's a good thing. I think... Oh, yeah. If you, you know... I, I mean, I try to write my own stuff so that, so that I take into account... And I and I'm upfront and honest about my own biases. You know, I'm a I'm a military officer who's concerned with how the military apparatus worked in 16th century Japan. If I state that up front, then they know where you're coming. Somebody from. knows where I'm coming from and understands why I write the way that I do. Whereas if I were to present, and this is one of the things that that you see in writing now, um, you know. Brett Walker, he's an ecological historian. He's not going to say that he's studying the political, you know, right. machinations of, of the Tokugawa yeah. government. He's right. focusing on his subject. Yeah, and he's going to stand up at the very beginning of a talk, which yeah. exactly was what happened, and he'll say, I've written about the Ainu, I've written about the wolves, I've written about Tokugawa period. My newest book is about post-war, and I'm not necessarily a post-war specialist, right. but, you know, acknowledge right. that. that. That's that's the Im important thing. I, I mean... Everybody brings a different viewpoint to it, and it contributes. If it's done right, you you synthesize it all together to build a bigger picture of Japan, of Japanese history, um, and and so on. And it you know it's okay. Before this wouldn't have been the you know it would have been you know well this is the way things were and this is the way things were. Right. Now it's it's okay to well I disagree with that and here's why. And you can have a, a reasoned discussion, or you, you know, you can punch each other out. <laughs> but I don't have to do. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't. You know, none of us. We don't. You read an author. You make. You question it. You make your own decisions, and then you you, you go with that. And, right. I, and I hope. Hopefully, this has given um, our listeners a little perspective on Japanese history. Um, you know. Yeah. Read as much as you can by as many different authors as you can. Question it, put them together, and and look at who they're reading, right. and what their sources are, and, and make a mind, decision. Be critical. Don't yeah. trust people. I mean, yeah. Yeah. You know, and and the same goes with listening to this podcast. I mean, just because we're saying it does not make it so. Um, it makes it makes it mostly reasonably so. Reasonably so. Um, but, uh, <laughs> you know, feel free to shoot us an email or, uh, yeah. you know, contact us through one of the many ways that Chris will list, list off. And, yeah. you know, I want to be told what I'm... If I, I may be wrong. I may say something that's wrong because I haven't read the source that says something else. Right. And we'd be and interested to know what those sources yeah, are because we, you know, we want to read it's, them. It's, it's all about learning as much as we can. So. Yep. So, uh, yeah, hopefully, uh, well, that wraps up our uh, podcast So for today. So hopefully uh, people get a little more perspective now on what actually goes into analyzing history and sort of the whole process and what it's all about. Maybe make it a little more three-dimensional than what you may have sort of thought about it or had impressions about it before. 
And well, you can reach us at Samurai Archives on Twitter. You can also send an email to samuraipodcast at gmail.com or get us at the forum or leave a comment at the podcast blog and or also leave us a five-star wonderful review on iTunes, which would be great. Get the word out a little more. Or one star if you feel like it. Uh, my preference is five stars, but <laughs> okay. <laughs> People have freedom of, you know. No, they don't. Okay. And, uh, okay, so... No, <laughs> so, uh... All the books that were mentioned will be listed on the podcast blog, of course, and right. if you are interested in picking up those books, please do so through the links provided, uh, fulfilled by Amazon.com, and you can help me pay for the podcast and everything else that I have to pay for vis-a-vis Samurai Archives. I used vis-a-vis in a sentence. Congratulations. <laughs> I feel so academic-y. And uh, other than that, uh, well, I guess that's pretty much it for this week in Japanese history, and uh, it's Chris here with Travis and Nate. Say bye bye and have fun. See you next week. Yeah.